uh, fantastic as we enter into Holy Week together. It's a week that saw so much take place. And yet even now on Palm Sunday, the cross towers over it all. In fact, way before the beginning of this week, Jesus talked about setting his face towards Jerusalem. And when they kind of queried that, his disciples, uh, he, he knew exactly why he was heading there. And he said to his disciples, surely you understand that a prophet will not die outside of Jerusalem. And then as you go back a little bit further, you, you realize that, uh, that Jesus, in some of the miracles that he did, was beginning to drop hints and clues about the kind of death he would die. And when they asked for a sign, he talked about the sign of Jonah being dead in the belly for three days and rising again. And as you go back a little bit further, you look into a, 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 a thousand years or more of Old Testament history prophesying, anticipating uh, someone that would die and would suffer and, uh, and so on. And so there's a real sense in which the cross uh, couldn't be too big. There's a real sense in which the cross towers over everything. Last year on my blog, I, I, I did a series this Holy Week of, of how the cross and resurrection feeds its way right through the Old Testament. So much so that when we get into the New Testament, the Bible says you need to understand about the cross, that it's been in God's heart since even before the world began. No, no, no. Even before time itself began. God, who has reached out to us to save us, called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and his own grace, this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. In other words, the, the cross towers, not just over Holy Week or Easter or the life of Jesus, the cross towers over the whole of history, your life and mine. Planned and prepared by God from eternity to eternity. Before the beginning of time, that the book of Revelation would say that at the end of time, back to the beginning of time, there is a lamb slain when before the foundation or creation of the world. A sense in which in God, this moment, those six hours when the world went dark, that moment is in God's heart for all moments, for all time. No accident, no surprise, but the main event that God has always, always carried in his heart. It's no surprise then, I don't think, given the, God's propensity for detail. If you look around the world, God is into detail, he's, he's into the big stuff. We'll have some stars over there and we'll have some tiny, tiny detail on this flower here. A God who's into detail wouldn't leave anything to chance. That there would be nothing about this event that's always been in God's heart that, that would just unfold chaotically without deep meaning and purpose 
and significance. It seems to me that everything that God does is, is packed with meaning. I'm going to put some stars into space, I'll put loads of them, and I'll tell you that I've named every one, so that every time you look at those stars, you know that God knows you, and he knows your name. Everything has a reason and a purpose. And so I want to look at some of the, the, the backstory of the cross, some of the little details around the cross that we would gloss over in our familiarity with the story. And that's what's God saying in that detail. So Lord, would you help us as we come to your cross this morning? There were many that welcomed you on Palm Sunday that never made it up the hill on Good Friday. Help us to climb the hill today. And even as we do, Lord, as you ripped open the the eyes of the the, the centurion so he could see and say, wow, that's God's son there. Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see and know God's son there. Help us, Lord. So travel with me then to the event that changed God forever and humanity for all eternity. We know the fable of the beauty and the beast. What would have happened to the beast if the beauty had not appeared? There was a time, of course, when even the beast's face was handsome and his palace pleasant. But that, of course, was before the curse. Ever since the curse, when the shadows fell on the castle and then on the prince, there was darkness in the land. And there was a beast. So what would have happened to the beast had the beauty never appeared? What if she'd not cared, and who would have blamed her if she hadn't? Hair drooling, roaring, defying. And she, in contrast, such a beauty, stunningly gorgeous, contagiously kind. If ever two people had lived up to their names, it was the beauty and the beast. So who would have blamed her if the beauty hadn't cared, hadn't come, had never appeared? But that's not the story. The story is of how the beauty came. And because the beauty loved the beast, the beast became beautiful himself. And this story of the beauty and the beast touches us at the deepest parts of our lives because it tells, in essence, the story of the whole of history. Of a day when the curse came and the shadows fell and the world went dark. And what was once full of beauty was marred by so many beasts. Has the beast shown itself in you this last week? Have you been impatient with your children? And unkind to your spouse? Been slightly manipulative with your work colleagues? Unfair to your subordinates? Underhand a little with your team? less than honest before your boss, a harsh word or action, the fostering of your own self-agenda. Has the beast appeared in you this last week? 
We're in good company, of course, because almost on every page of the Bible, the, the beast comes bursting forth in human lives. Even the great apostle who did so much for the spread of the gospel says, there's this beast in me. The very things that I want to do, I don't do. And the very things I wish I didn't do, I find I'm doing those things. There's a beast at work in me. As Jesus came to the greatest moment of his mission, the cross, Everyone was passing the buck around. Herod wanted a show. Pilate wanted to get, get out and wash his hands of it. And the soldiers were left with a job to do. There were two tasks for these soldiers. Two tasks that they'd done time and time again. The first is that they were to take the prisoner and they were to whip him, to scourge him. They were allowed up to 39 lashes. Sometimes those lashes themselves, metal balls with spikes on leather, ripping the flesh off someone's back, would kill a man. And so they would stand a centurion by in order to stop the overzealous soldiers from killing the man before his time. And so barely alive, the prisoner would slump to the floor. Then just one more job for the soldiers, to make him carry his crossbeam and to nail him to the cross. But these soldiers this day did more than that. Why, we don't know. Were they so bored of all that was going on, it was time for them to create some fun? Something caused them to disturb their routine. And so strong, rested, armed soldiers, encircled and exhausted, nearly dead, Galilean carpenter, and they beat him up. They stripped him, they put a scarlet robe on him, and they mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, (laughs) they said. And then, they spit on him. You ever thought about the spit on Jesus' face? Spitting doesn't hurt anybody, at least not the body, but it crucifies the soul. If you've ever been spat on, you'll know what I mean. Turn and look at the person next to you and consider spitting in their face. They spat on him. Have we ever done that? Maybe we've never spat. But we've gossiped and slandered and we've raised our hands in anger, rolled our eyes in arrogance. Have we blasted our headlights in someone's rearview mirror, gesticulated with a fist or something worse? Have we ever made someone feel bad so that we might feel a little better about ourselves? And these soldiers, they gathered round and they elevated themselves at the expense of another and they spat in his face. That's what these soldiers did. That's what our lives do when the beast within us comes to the fore. Does not the spit of the soldier symbolize the ugliness, the rottenness, the arrogance, the pride, the self-centered, self-seeking, self-serving beast that lives within each of us? And what does Jesus do? He takes it with him to the cross. Mingled with the blood and the sweat will be the spit of these soldiers in his face. 
the ugliness that all of that represents. In the fable, the beauty kisses the beast. But in the Bible, the beauty becomes the beast. He takes on the ugliness. The spit, just a sign. He, he takes on the ugliness of, of who I am, of what I'm about. The Bible says that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. He carried the very core of what's ugly about being a human being. He carried the the, the very dregs of our humanity as they spat on his face. And they took it, and he took it to the cross. And don't miss the crown of thorns either on his head. It's easy, I think, to pass over. Hard to imagine the humiliation for Jesus. Hard to imagine what it was like to have it rammed on his head. But that's what they did. It says in part of the mockery they would put a crown of thorns on his head. The spit, not enough. What do we understand about the crown of thorns that they set on him? They put a staff in his hand and they put this royal robe around him just as a means of mockery. What, what is the, the thorn, the spikes of these crown, of this crown? Way back in Genesis chapter 3, when the curse fell, it talks about the curse affecting every detail, every area of our lives. It says the ground will be cursed. It will produce thorns and thistles. You see, the, the fruit of my sin is like this, sharp, barbed, cutting, wounding, ugly. And all that's ugly was placed on his head. The very symbol of what it means to wound and hurt one another was placed upon him. Why did Jesus cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God had forsaken him. Because as Jesus there on the cross took your sin and mine and literally placed it on him, the huge separation, the huge consequence of sin, the gulf that it creates between us and God opened up like a mighty chasm. And for the first time ever, Jesus was searching, reaching for a father. He didn't know. He couldn't reach. He wasn't there. And suddenly the spikes on his head, which were piercing his brow, became nothing to the thorn that pierced his heart. Because that's what sin does. The path of the wicked lie thorns 
and snares. And so he gathered it up, of which this crown symbolized. He gathered the fruit, the consequence of my wrongdoing. And with it placed on his head, he went off to the cross. So now, there is in store for me a crown of righteousness. You see, this was mine, but he wore it. The crown of righteousness was his, but who's going to wear it? Me, we are. A bit hesitant to say me in case it's just me. You're in. That's the exchange. And so he walks out of the city with this on his head as, as a sign of the, the prickliness, the, the barbness, the fruit, the consequence of my sin. That's what my sin does. It cuts and it wounds and it hurts and it debilitates and it destroys. That's what your sin does. When they got to the place of crucifixion, they put a sign up above Jesus' head that read, as that sign does, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. But sometimes we fail to remind ourselves that they went to the trouble to write the sign in three different languages. It wasn't enough just for the Jews to understand that this man dying was the king. It wasn't enough for the Jews, written in Hebrew. It wasn't enough for religions to understand that Jesus was dying. The Roman world needed to understand, with all their laws and governance, as if they could make a better world by their organization. The Greek world needed to understand that Jesus died for them, as if they could make a better world through all their culture. So the three great languages of the day, the language of religion, the language of governance, the language of culture, this was a message for all peoples. There would never be a religion that would do what the cross was doing. Religion is about trying to get to God. There is not a religion on the earth that has a cross. Hallelujah. There is no governance from Rome or anywhere else that can solve what's going on in our hearts. There is no culture, no entertainment, no celebrity status, no person of the moment that can save us and rescue us. And so to the world of religion and to the world of governance and to the world of culture, they wrote this message, Jesus, King of the Jews. Because everyone needed to know and to understand. I don't know, Dave, whether you can get this up there somewhere. Where is he? But people say, it's not for me. People, whatever that is, whatever that Jesus is, whoever who he is, whoever what he, what, what he did, that's not for me. It, it, it's, it's for everyone. And they put the sign in every language. This is a, a call to the whole world to come. 
For Christ died for sins once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous. To bring you, to bring me to God. For all. Doesn't matter today who you are. Doesn't matter where you've been. Doesn't matter what you're about. Doesn't matter what your skills are. It doesn't matter where you grew up, who you're related to, what you've done. The message is for all. The cross for all peoples. Once and for all. You cannot say I'm too bad or I'm too heathen or I'm part of the wrong gang or I'm born in the wrong place. The sign reads for all. For Christ was dying for all. Have you ever not been able to get into the right place because you were wearing the wrong clothes? You're lucky you were allowed in this morning. Have you ever stood outside a building of some kind and you wanted to go in, but the dress code said no? Funniest experience I've had reasonably recently was before I ran the marathon last year, we'd gone to London, met some people, and we'd done some running together around Hyde Park, and I was looking for somewhere to change. I was hot, sweaty, I looked like a wreck, and uh, I thought the Ritz would be a really good place. (laughs) So I walked straight into the foyer of the Ritz with my bag on my back and said, can I change somewhere? They almost bundled me out like I'd been physically abusive to everybody because I didn't have the right clothes. So what's going on at the cross about the clothes and the rightness of them? The Bible says that they divided up his clothes and they they cast lots, they threw some dice just to see who would get his clothes. There was something special about what Jesus had the Bible talks about a seamless robe in John that Jesus wore. Uh, we don't know, it was probably given to him by his mother. It was almost certainly and overwhelmingly the most expensive thing he'd ever had. He probably wore it all the time. Brilliantly appropriate for Jesus, a seamless garment, complete, pure, unbroken, So many images and metaphors this seamless garment might create about the life of Jesus and who he was. His character so coordinated and unified. His robe of uninterrupted perfection simply expressed his life. Woven from top it would have been to bottom. The one who would come from heaven to earth. A beautiful robe. And just to help us understand what's going on as Jesus hung on the cross, uh, uh, almost naked, maybe naked, some were, the indignity of nakedness, the shame of failure, the indignity, the grossness of the, uh, of the sin of the, the, the moment. We read these verses in the Bible about clothes and robes and, uh, and, and how what you wear is, is symbolic of what's going on in your heart, all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts, yours and mine, are like filthy rags. doesn't matter what you wear, Isaiah is saying, your life is, is like a filthy rag compared to who God is. Zechariah sometime later talked about uh, exchanging our, our rags for a righteous robe as a sign of what God would do in our hearts. 
Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see I've taken away your sin and I'll put rich garments on you. Not surprisingly then in the New Testament it talks about clothing ourselves in in, in righteousness, in humility and, and so on. And so they took this robe and it was too good to divide between them. They didn't know what to do. And so they started to cast lots as to who would have the robe. Who would take it home? Was it the person who'd rolled the number four? The number six? Were there two dice? Were there three? And as Jesus hung on the cross, there was a soldier that put a robe on that wasn't his, that he'd done nothing to earn, and he could never deserve. And he went home with that robe that day. That's quite something, don't you think? Exactly a picture of what can happen to us as we come to the cross. We come in our filthy rags, we come in our dirty bloodstained, as those soldiers were, bloodstained clothes, hands covered in guilt and filth and hatred and horror. And we get given this robe that we could have done nothing to earn or deserve. Don't miss the seamless robe. He himself here bore our sins on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. And so they divided up the clothes. And when it came to this seamless garment that they couldn't divide up, they cast lots. And someone went home with a robe that day. That they didn't earn. That they didn't deserve. A robe they had absolutely no right to wear. And Isaiah spoke prophetically of this moment. He says, my soul's going to rejoice because he's clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. And all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Royal robes I don't deserve. I live to serve your majesty. Think just for a moment, would you in your mind's eye the guy walking down with a robe that wasn't his, that he'd never earned, that he could never deserve. Because that's you. one thing about the cross that really still haunts me. No, that's not fair. There are lots of things about the cross that still haunt me. This one still lives with me fresh. I, I, I can't shake it off. Maybe I should never try to shake it off. The Bible says that as they stretched him out on the cross, he, he prayed, Father, forgive them. For they don't know what they're doing. As he was stretched out, 
He was offering forgiveness. That's what the cross is about. That's why he was there. That's what he was doing. And it's like an offer, isn't it? You can accept or you can reject forgiveness that's offered. And the big deal now is how we respond. Do we receive his forgiveness? Do we uh, respond in love and sacrifice and praise? Do we give our lives back to him the very least that he deserves? And then a little later, Jesus cried from the cross after he'd cried it is. Uh, after he cried this cry of forgiveness and, and before he cried it is finished that the whole forgiveness payment was done and dusted and over the Bible says that Jesus cried that he was thirsty and I'd never really understood any more significance than the fact that someone a soldier as it would appear from the gospels got a stick and put a sponge on a stick just like we might imagine, although this one would be dirty and grubby. And he soaked it in wine vinegar and he he put it up to Jesus' lips just to moisten his lips. You ever been in hospital when someone's mouth is really dry? You moisten their lips with a little pink antiseptic sponge dipped in antiseptic. Wine vinegar up to his mouth. And I thought that was it. And then I understood something that that was quite horrifying, really. You see, in Jesus' day, they'd have public toilets. And in these public toilets, uh, the lowest servants, the lowest slaves, had seen an opportunity to earn a little bit of money. And there was no toilet paper in those days, so uh, the, the people that used the toilet were left to clean for themselves in the water that was just nearby. But some servants would, low servants desperate to earn a living, desperate to pay for their family maybe, would go to those public toilets and they would offer to serve the people there by washing their backsides for them using a stick on a sponge. And that was fine. And then as it all developed, they realized that uh, that would cause infection one to another. So after a period of time, they developed the practice that in between wipes, they would dip the sponge in wine vinegar before the next person. So when they say in that day, they got a stick on a sponge, everybody knew what that meant. Everyone knew what that stick and that sponge was. And they lifted it up to Jesus. Coming to the end of his life. And they attempted to moisten his lips with what had been used to wipe the backsides of the people standing around. There are so many things about the cross that are too gross, really, for me to say out loud when we gather here. Some of the awfulness of things reported. Some of the horror of things that were done. That's how they responded. He stretched out his arms and he said, Father, forgive them, 
and they rammed the sponge full of someone else's waste into his mouth. That's what sin does. That's what humanity is like. That's the beast that lies within. It was that sponge and that stick. And so Jesus died and the taste in his mouth was our rejection. The taste in his mouth was our mockery. The last action towards him was of our turning away and our utter disregard for who he was and why he was there. It's a sign of two crosses finally on either side that invite you and I to make a choice. Sometimes there were loads of crosses. This day there were just two on either side. Two crosses representing a choice. Two people who lived the same kind of life whose future would totally now change because of the choice that they would make at the cross. It happens, of course. Maybe you've heard before the story of Edwin Thomas More, who was the, uh, Thomas Booth, rather, who was the master of the stage. He dominated the latter half of the 1800s in both New York and London. He had two brothers, John and Junius. And in 1863, all three siblings united their talents to perform Julius Caesar. Edwin's brother John took the role of Brutus and it was to be an eerie harbinger of what awaited the brothers and the nation two years hence. In April 1865, John sneaked into the rear box of a Washington theatre and fired a bullet at the head of Abraham Lincoln. Edwin never got over what his brother had done and soon retired. He may never have returned to the stage without a twist of fate some years later and a New Jersey train station. As he waited on the platform, a well-dressed man was trying to squeeze through the crowd and lost his footing and fell down the platform and the moving, uh, towards the moving train. Without hesitation, Edwin locked his leg around a railing, grabbed the man and pulled him to safety. The young man who was saved recognised the famous actor as Edwin Booth. Edwin didn't recognise the man he'd rescued until a letter arrived some weeks later. The man Edwin Booth had saved was Abraham Lincoln's son, Robert Todd Lincoln. How ironic that whilst one brother killed the president, the other brother would save the president's son. How odd that two people with the same mother and the same father and the same opportunities and the same passion, one chooses life and the other death. How could that happen? How could people make such radically different decisions? But we read it over and over again. How come Abel and Cain, both sons of Adam, and one chooses God and the other chooses death? How come Abraham and Lot, both pilgrims in Cana, Abraham chooses God and Lot chooses Sodom? How come David and Saul, both kings of Israel, David chooses God and Saul chooses power? How come Peter and Judas both deny Jesus, but Peter seeks mercy and Judas seeks death? On every page there's this choice. 
And here we have it again. Two people either side of Jesus who've lived identical lives. They've probably both had rubbish backgrounds. They've probably both made stupid decisions. They've probably both uh, 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 been part of hideous crimes. But their future will be vastly different because of just one choice. Just one choice. And whilst we might rejoice in the thief who repented, let's not forget the thief that never did. The one who stayed with his taunts and mockery. And Jesus loved them both. When one chose him, Jesus loved him enough to welcome him to paradise. When one rejected, Jesus loved him enough to let him choose. The choice was theirs. The choice is ours. Have you seen the spit that's about the beast within? Have you seen the crown that I should have worn? Have you seen the sign open to all? Have you seen the robe which is what's on offer? Have you seen the sponge and been challenged about your choice? As Jesus cries from the cross, how do you respond? The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life.